Father, as we come for your word now, we give you praise and we give you glory. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and especially in your son. As we look to your word now, continue to reveal us more of who your son is. And Father, as we learn more about your son, teach us more about the kind of worshipers that you wish us to be. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke once again. We're going to go back to the Gospel of Luke. We took a, a whole month off, essentially, and uh, went to, uh, back to a, a very uh, elementary series of reminding us about what is our, the mission, vision, and values of Essa Bible, really introducing Essa Bible to you. And Essa Bible, uh, as a church, is to be a loving church, a disciple-making uh, disciple church, and to be a Christ-proclaiming church. So... That's what we want to be. Uh, that's our aim. That's our desire. That's our big picture. Uh, all to the glory of God. So uh, now we return back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter, uh, we're in Luke chapter 21 this morning. Luke 21. And I'm going to read a little bit, uh, the few verses before it, just to remind us again of the context of this. Luke 20, uh, verse 45, all the way through 21, verse 4. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Amen. In John chapter 4, Jesus has this exchange with a Samaritan woman at the well. And if you're familiar with the pastor, then you know that they end up discussing a very divisive question in that day regarding worship, particularly where people ought to worship. On Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped, or in Jerusalem, where the Jews worshipped. Jesus' answer was full of insight and wisdom. Listen to John 4, 21 and 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, Jesus taught a transformative truth about worship that day. God is spirit, and he does not seek worship in, in any particular place. Rather, what he seeks are true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That is, in the internal thoughts and attitudes of our souls, our hearts that are, are in accord, as well as in response to God's revelation of himself in his word. And this, this kind of worship is a constant challenge and struggle for all worshipers of God. What is in the heart it is often reflected in one's external acts. 
And what we end up doing often is because we can't really see the heart, we often evaluate ourselves and others by one's external acts. Where do I worship, we ask ourselves. Uh, do we worship online or in person? We evaluate, is this, uh, how do we worship? How do I worship? Do I, do I sing loudly or do I sing quietly? How do I worship? Do I lift up my hands or do I keep them down below? When do I worship? We focus on, do I worship once a week or do I worship every day or every day and night? And while there is relevance to these questions, these pragmatic questions of the circumstances of our worship, the form of our worship, Jesus would remind us that to look at the external is to forget that he looks at the heart. And that is what he seeks in our worship. Not the external things that we seek after, but the internal condition and state of our hearts. Today's passage illustrates this truth and teaches us about worship that the Lord seeks, a worship that flows out genuinely of a love and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the chronology of Jesus' Passion Week, uh, this event marks the end of Jesus' public ministry in the temple. His last recorded words in the temple that is the center of Israel's worship concern a poor widow's offering in the worship at the temple. Her worship stands in strong contrast to the preceding condemnation of the religious leaders in uh, verse 46 and 47, chapter 20. And though those religious leaders were charged with leading Israel to worship God through their instruction and teaching, their worship, as well as their example, their worship was really a sham. It was fake. Their worship was not a worship of God. It was a worship of self. They sought to be seen, to be respected, to be honored. Their worship was, was not about giving God anything, but it was all about getting as they devoured widows' houses. Their worship was all about Outward appearances, praying to be seen by men rather than to be seen by God. Jesus condemned them for their false worship. But in contrast, Jesus commends a poor widow for her true worship. And as an outline today, we're going to look at simply two truths that encourage genuine worship and giving. Two truths that encourage Genuine worship and giving in these uh, four verses that we're going to look at and focus on this morning. And the first truth that encourages us to genuine worship and giving is found in verses 1 and 2. And that is this, that Jesus sees our worship. Jesus sees our worship. Having just completed his condemnation of the religious leaders, Jesus now turns his attention to this particular activity of worship that many Israelites were participating in on that Passover, uh, Passover week. That is, the giving to the temple. Notice, you'll, as we read these, reread these first two verses, the emphasis is on what he sees, what he's looking at. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in treasury, and he saw a poor widow putting into two small copper coins. Mark's gospel contains the only parallel passage to, uh, to this event, and he remarks that Jesus actually sat down opposite the treasury, Jesus had been teaching in what was known as the larger court of the Gentiles, outside of the inner temple. 
and you, if you will. And then, at this point, he sets opposite the treasure. So he gets closer to where the, the, the kind of in, inner court of the temple. And, and that first part of the inner court is known as the women's court, where, the, where these, uh, the treasury was located. And he's, he's observing people putting in their, their donations, their gifts into the treasury to, for the temple, for worship to God. Uh, the Mishnah, the Jewish kind of uh, uh, commentary on this, describes how there were 13 uh, of the religious life, 13 brass trumpets. Uh, they were, they were horn, their trumpets, they were called shofars. In fact, that's what the name reflects it. These brass, they were trumpet-shaped chests for, to receive the various donations that could be made in the temple. Uh, inscriptions upon each one indicated what offerings would be designated for, and things like new shekel dues, old shekel dues, bird offerings, young birds for the whole offering, for wood, frankincense, gold for the mercy seat. And then there were six, uh, six um, particular chests designated for free will offerings. And into these various uh, uh, trumpet-shaped chests, Gold coins, silver coins, bronze, copper coins were all being put into the treasury by the worshipers who had gathered for the Passover. And Jesus first observes then, if you notice in verse 1, he's, he's observed the rich people giving, making their donations and giving offerings to the Lord. They Then you can imagine the sound of coins clinking into the chest would draw people's attention. It's just like if, uh, you know, just uh, as if you, you know, all of a sudden a bunch of coins were dropped on the floor, you, everyone would turn their heads to see, ooh, that's, you know, you just can't help but notice that. And the sounds of the coins would just, uh, the, would, would just be very appealing. It just probably was a very wonderful sound, in a sense, especially with the trumpet-shaped uh, chest. But nevertheless, and those that gave much would create a greater sound. So that, you know, you can know the difference between putting in uh, five coins or one coin versus someone who puts in like a hundred coins or two hundred coins. It would just, the sound would be so much qualitatively different. And, it, and everyone would be like, oh, ah, wow, that's cool, you know. It's like just watching those, um, well, I, knew, I was going to date myself, but just watching coins fall down. And it just, it was just a very kind of appealing. And Jesus is watching them give and he's, he's observing this. And, and likely there were, and Keep in mind, there were probably some who gave genuinely out of sincere and pure motives. But as is often the case with the wealthy, many here were following the footsteps of their religious leaders. And they were just like the religious leaders. They were caught up in the giving, giving of wealth, giving of honor, giving of treasury, of donations, to be seen and respected by men in a visible way. Even this, that offering was very visible in the way they received it. Think about it, even today, it's still the same thing goes on. When people give or make donations, it's often publicized. It's often made known. Did you know in the, last year, you think about 2020, you just kind of did a quick research of what are the top givers, top individual donations that were made? Jeff Bezos made the single largest donation to charity last year. He gave a whopping, can you believe it, $10 billion, one-time gift to launch something known as the Bezos Earth Fund to fight climate change. Uh, number two was Nike co-founder. The second greatest gift last year was Nike co-founder Phil Knight, his wife Penny. They gave $900 million, $900 million to the Knight Foundation. Uh, and then they also gave $300 million to the University of Oregon. Uh, but it's not called University of Knight, Oregon yet. But who knows? They'll probably have a building named after them. Tied for number three, of course, is a guy named Fred Kummer. You don't know much about him. I think he's in the construction business. But he gave $300 million to establish something known as the 
Comer Institute Foundation. You notice any trends in these individuals? They're, they're seeming very generous. $10 billion, $900 million, $300 million. That's a lot of money. That's more than all of us have together, probably. But how much giving is tied into receiving recognition? The Bezos Earth Fund, the Knight Foundation, the Comer Institute Foundation. And I don't, you don't need to question they're sincere or they're giving, but just notice how it's so common to get recognition for our giving, especially among the wealthy today. You know how much of us give to the church? Hey, you need to name that door after me. That's the Henry Tam door because I'm giving my money to it. Or I want to give that little light. Can you call that light the, the, the Henry light? Because I'm going to give. It's strange, but that's what they do. Um, People have buildings named after them, photos taken, names promoted for all the world to see when they give. And we humans, we, we get blinded by the size of these gifts. We're like, wow, that's a lot of money. And, and it is a lot of money to us. And in the world, the bigger the amount, the greater the gift. The more respected or honored is that person even. But not so before the Lord. Jesus saw the giving in, in worship of the rich on that, in, in the temple. But he also saw the giving in worship of a poor widow. Now, widows are a significant focus of, in Luke's gospel. Uh, widows, in general, in the New Testament, or, are not just women who have lost husbands, like in our day, we might think of widows because their husbands have passed on. But widows in the New Testament have this, this, this picture. It's a picture of great helplessness and vulnerability. Because their husband has died and he was the main provider for them. And so they are, these widows are often left as destitute and easily taken advantage of. In fact, in the Bible, orphans and widows are often given special attention to be cared for by Israelite society. They were not to be mistreated because the implication is that they were the most helpless. They received his special attention. And so oftentimes, widows then were those who were forced and compelled, and there was no other choice but to look to the Lord for provision and protection. In all of the Gospels, and the four Gospels, 13 references to widows or widow, seven of them are found in Luke, half of them, more than half. And in Luke's portrayal of them, they are often portrayed as women of faith whether it's Anna, the prophetess, the widow of Zarephath in Elijah's days, uh, the widow who lost her only son, the persistent widow in Jesus' parable, and even this poor widow. They're all presented as people who are in need, or in people who have must exercise faith in dependence for the Lord for protection and provision. The description of this widow as poor is a, is a, it's a unique word. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And the idea is that she's impoverished. She's very poor. She's just not, she's not just below the poverty level. She's at the bottom of the poverty level. In verse 3, Jesus will use a different word for poor there, meaning one who is beggarly poor. So this widow is in desperate state. She is alone. She's by herself. Her husband has died. She has no children to help her. She has nothing and no one in this world except two small copper coins. We think about 
two pennies, maybe. The actual word is leptas, the two leptas. They were two of the smallest coins in circulation that day, kind of like our pennies. But their pennies was worth one one sixty-fourth of a denarius or a day's wage. If we think about it in today's terminology, because uh, assuming a laborer's day wage, we think you know many people get fifteen dollars an hour uh, times eight, that's one hundred twenty bucks a day. Uh, what she gave, if you one sixty-four, that's about equivalent to a dollar eighty-seven, a little less than two dollars. Nevertheless, it was a very small amount. She had two coins to her name, two leptas, and she gave them both. In comparison to what other people were giving, her giving was an insignificantly small amount. An insignificant widow giving an insignificant offering. No one would have noticed her or her giving, but Jesus sees her. Jesus notices her. And that's a good lesson. That's an encouraging lesson. Jesus sees you as well. Jesus knows. He sees your worship. He sees your giving. The Lord is God and he is all-knowing. And in fact, oftentimes in in the Gospels, Jesus is described as knowing the thoughts of men, knowing what people are thinking. He doesn't just see and know their actions. He sees and knows their hearts. King David writes of the omniscience and omnipresence of the Lord in Psalm 139. I'd like to read that for you. O Lord, David writes, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. And the rest of the psalm elaborates even further on that. But the Lord knows all things. He sees our worship. He sees our giving. You know, we, when we give, let us not give to be seen by men. When we worship, let's not worship to be seen by men. Let us be worship and give to be seen by the Lord because he sees truly. And though some of us will give great amounts, the Lord sees and knows what's in our hearts. And no gift to the Lord. Some of us are rich and some of us are poor, but no gift to the Lord is insignificant. The Lord sees every cent given and every act done for him. More than what we do on the outside is what we are thinking on the inside. Now, we may all look spiritual gathering together uh, to worship. But as we do so, that may look, make, uh, make us look good before each other. But the Lord sees our heart. And what is, what is real, real, true of our hearts is, can tell a whole different story. He knows whether you worship him out of arrogant pride or humble piety. He hears and knows your every thought and motive as you sing the songs, as you're listening to a sermon. Are you paying attention? Are you listening to him? He hears and knows. He sees and knows your worship and your giving. Proverbs 16, 12 says, All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And that's what Jesus does with the widow. He weighs her giving, her the motives of her giving. And he does that with you and me too. 
And that leads us uh, and teaches us uh, our second truth that we learn here. Not only does Jesus see our worship, but Jesus weighs our worship in verse 3 to 4. He weighs our worship. Verse 3, uh, 4, we can kind of just read it out loud. He said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. In chapter 20, verse 45, there it indicates that Jesus was speaking to his disciples there. And unless something, to cha- the, the, something has ch- changed in between, it's likely that he's still speaking to his disciples here. In fact, Mark's parallel tells us that Jesus does, at this point, call his disciples to himself as he, having observed the widow, he calls disciples to himself and he speaks these words to them. So, in speaking, Jesus offers his evaluation of the poor widow's offering. What Jesus is about to say is meant as a lesson for his disciples. Then, as well as today, it's for us today. What he has to say about them, her is what he says to his disciples throughout history and to us today. And Jesus prefaces his statement. What he wants us to learn, what he wants his disciples to know, is says, truly I say to you. Jesus doesn't often say that. He says it only a handful of times in the Gospels. But Jesus, when he says it, he's emphasizing something that is unexpected. It's an unexpected truth. It's something that you don't expect. And the unexpected truth that he's about to say about this widow who gave just two small copper coins is that this poor, impoverished, beggarly widow gave more than all those who were putting money into the treasury, even more than all the rich and wealthy donors, more than the $10 billion gifts and the $900 million gifts and the $300 million gifts. This woman's two leftas, two coins, Copper coins was more according to Jesus. From a financial standpoint, yes, her two leftists were much less than the gift of the others. But from a spiritual standpoint, her two leftists were much more. Jesus sees her giving, and he weighs her giving, and he commends it as more than the others. That's what he says. It's more than all of them. Now, before we go on too much online, I want to say that some recent scholars have interpreted this passage, instead of being a commendation of this woman's giving, as instead a lament. That it's a lament against the religious system. It's a, it's a, that would compel a widow to give all that she had, and thus being having her, her offering, her Possession devoured by the religious leaders, which leads to the judgment upon the temple in the Olivet Discourse that follows. And while that is a it is a possible consideration of the surrounding context before and after, when we look again just simply at the immediate context of this passage, I believe they strongly suggest the traditional interpretation that so many other scholars continue to hold today. Jesus intentionally here in this passage, right in these three verses, intentionally contrasts this widow's giving with that of the rich donors. He does it in both in verses 1 to 2, and he does it in verse 4, before, in between this evaluation of her giving. If this was a lament upon the religious system, then there is no need to mention that, that about the giving of the wealthy. Rather, 
Instead, what we find is that she stands, she's presented here as an example in contrast to the impious, greedy religious leaders and the impious, wealthy people who were giving to the temple. And the corruption of the religious leaders that resulted in the corruption of the, the rich and people giving to the temple really was what would lead to the judgment upon the temple and all Jerusalem. So Jesus is commending this widow for her generous giving. So how can it be that Jesus would say that this widow is giving more than all the others? What kind of formula, what, what principle is at work here? Jesus offers his, his explanation in verse 4. I'll read it again. For, he says, they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. See, the reason why Jesus commended her giving as being more than everyone else was because all the wealthy were giving out of their surplus. What was basically what was left over after they had spent money on themselves. The widow, on the other hand, gave sacrificially, first of all. She gave out of her poverty. The word means that she was in need. She was in want. Really, she couldn't spare what she gave. But she gave it anyways. And she gave it all. All that she had to live on. And in this way, she gave generously as well. She had two coins, if you keep in mind. And she could have kept one and given the other in sincere worship and the Lord would have been just as pleased. But, But she gave both coins. She gave it all. All that she had to live on. Isn't She would have to go without until she could earn more. And in this way, she also gave dependently. In so giving, she basically entrusted herself to the Lord in whom she gave her offerings to. She was recognizing that though she has very little, by giving to the Lord, she knows that the Lord has so much more and the Lord, she's trusting the Lord to provide for her. Her giving reflected a complete and total faith and dependence upon God. And though we often say that at this point, and this usually in the sermon, that it doesn't mean that we all have to give everything away to go, but let's not, let's not soften the point, is that by giving away all that she had to the Lord, she really was giving in such a, in a, in a dependent and God-honoring way. She was completely trusting in the Lord. It really does come down to that, the question of, are you willing to give all of yourself to, and all of your possessions to the Lord? For that was what was lacking in the people of Jesus' day. For in those days, faith in God wasn't about trusting in Him. Rather, it was about observing external rules and rituals. Worship wasn't about following him for one's daily bread. It was about following dietary and Sabbath laws. 
And Jesus wanted his disciples to see this widow's example of faith manifest in her worship. And it is the kind of faith that he wants his disciples to have. It's a faith that sacrifices of oneself. It's a faith that surrenders all to Jesus. It's a faith that requires total dependence upon him. You know, it's not just for this life, but it's in for the life to come. You know, when you get to heaven, you stand before the Lord. What are you going to depend upon when he asks you, why should he let you into his heaven? Why should, he, why should you be received into his presence? Are you going to answer with, well, you know, um, I've something that something that I've done is it something that I've I've given something external or will it be a faith that completely cast yourself upon what Christ and Christ alone has provided for you a total dependence upon him it's only because of Christ that we can be accepted that I may enter and I've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and eternal life. And though I don't deserve it, I thank you for your grace of saving me. Well, this widow's giving that is weighed by the Lord and, and uh, commended, I want to just uh, kind of summarize it with three applications with respect to giving from this text. Now again, remember, it's, it's not so much about the amount you give, but the manner in which you give. And even as I talk about giving in this uh, time, I know that it can be a sensitive subject for some. I know that some of you have lost jobs, have had your hours cut. Your finances are tighter than ever. I understand that your ability is greatly limited at this time to give. And I do not want to guilt you into giving. Do not give because I said so, or I'm asking you to. But I want to share with you just out of love that something that one of my pastors taught me a long time ago is this. If you don't learn to give when you have little, then you won't give when you have much. We need to learn to give even when we have little. When you're that poor college student barely making ends meet. Then as the Lord gives you and blesses you with more, you will have that attitude that learns to, to give, keep giving in, in a way that honors God even when God gives you much. So with that understanding, here are three principles for giving that always apply when you have much, whether you have much or whether you have little. Okay, Whether you have much or whether you have little. Number one is when you give, give sacrificially. When you give to the Lord's work, give sacrificially. Give not what you can spare like the religious leaders or, or the rich were doing, but give what you're willing to sacrifice. What is a sacrifice to you? Because the widow's giving was great because of her sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for her. And when we give, it ought to cost us something. It ought to be a cost. It ought not to be like, oh, I can spare it, you know. Whether it's foregoing, maybe even 
something where we make simple choices like forgoing our, our favorite drink that we have every day or every other day or each week. Or maybe we're forgoing that, that newer phone that we want or newer item or even as big as delaying a, a purchase of a home for a couple of years because you want to make sure that you give sacrifice to the Lord. Because giving out a sacrifice and not surplus pleases the Lord. We already read earlier from 2 Sam 24-4 about King David who wouldn't offered freely a threshing floor to build an altar to the Lord and even the animals to sacrifice on it. David replied, No, but I will surely buy from you for a price for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God which cost me nothing. Let us not offer the Lord anything that doesn't cost us anything. Number two, when you give, give generously. Give generously. Uh, <clears throat> when we give, we, let's give in a way that reflects who our God is, who our Lord is, that would encourage then others to give, do the same. In the passage, Jesus knows that he's heading to the cross. Think about it, he's, he's going to head to the cross in a, little, in a few days. And as he heads there, the memory of this widow who put in all that she had to live on would be with him as he heads to the cross to give all that he has, including his very own life. His generosity and hers to a lesser degree have encouraged many saints throughout history to give generously for his kingdom. May it do the same for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There's an encouragement to give generously. Our generosity, and what's more, our generosity with the treasure, the, our treasures here on earth is a means by which we store up treasures in heaven. Not gold or silver, but souls. The souls of our children, the souls of our family, the souls of our friends, the souls of our, yes, our enemies, the souls of strangers, all bound to hell unless they hear about Jesus and believe in him. Treasures that will be to the glory of God when we get there. Thirdly, when you give, give dependently. Give dependently. The key lesson here is not really just about giving, but rather about your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord. In, this, in the whole flow of this passage, it's really about recognizing the Lordship of Christ. It comes out of even just the, the, view, the passage right before his condemnation is that when Jesus calls them, to, he asks them the question, who, do, who is the son of, who is uh, the David's son. Why is they, why do we call him? Why is he? Uh, why is the? Why does David call him Lord? There's a significance to that here. It's reflected in this widow's giving that she recognizes Jesus as, as Lord. And there's a dependence upon him. Do you? Do you completely depend upon him for your life, both eternal and presently? your day-to-day life? Do you really believe when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things shall be added to you, that is, all your needs will be provided? Do you believe that? If you have such faith, then it will reveal itself in the life you live, in the way you give, in the way you worship, in the way you serve. We can give generously, sacrificially, independently because God gave this way. And God gave this way when he gave us his son.
I love Romans 8.32 when it says this, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God has given us so generously. He's given us Jesus, and he's given us everything else in this life. Jesus saw and weighed the giving and worship of this poor widow, who though she gave two small coins, in his evaluation, she gave more than all the others. And our Lord Jesus sees and weighs our worship and our giving too. Even today, our Lord has seen and evaluated my worship. And he's seen and he's evaluated your worship, your giving, your singing, your praying, your attending, your speaking, your observing. All these outward manifestations of worship. And he doesn't just look at whether you do them. He looks at your heart. He looks at your motives, your attitudes, your thoughts. And whereas we all can fool one another with our outward, with outward forms, we all, can, we all know the game, what, what it looks like, what ought to look like, what we believe is right spiritual worship. But we cannot fool the Lord if we're faking it inside. He, lo he looks and knows what is in our hearts. And so let us be true worshipers who are not fake worshipers, but let us be true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Let me leave you with three questions for discussion, kind of just uh, thoughts and discussion this week. Number one question is this. When you worship, what is going on in your heart? Are you going through the motions in your worship? Are you worshiping to check something off the list? Are you worshiping to earn God's favor? Are you worshiping to be seen by others or to get something for yourself? Or are you worshiping out of a thankful heart that loves him because he loved you and gave, his, gave you his son? Number two, when you give, are you giving sacrificially, generously, independently? Do you give out of surplus or out of sacrifice? Do you give trusting in God to provide for you? Do you give as the Lord has given you? Thirdly, are you more concerned about your own or others' outward, outward observance of worship rather than your own or others' inward attitudes? Let's not be so focused on outward observances of worship. There's a lot of debate these days about the outward forms of worship. And there's a place for that. Let's not judge one another for those things. Rather, let us, let us know that God is only concerned about the inward heart and attitude. Worship in spirit and truth. And we may not be able to judge another's heart until we talk to them and find out and ask them. And But God knows. God seeks true worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. So let us, because Jesus sees our worship and he weighs our worship, let us be encouraged to worship him in the way that God seeks. Let him take our lives and let it be used for a service and worship and glory to him. Let's, let's respond in song.